Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hi, everyone. It's Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. You're about to hear a long conversation I had with Professor Andrew Briggs and Dr. Dominic Burbage of Oxford on a new report that they just co-authored titled Citizenship in a Networked Age. In an in-person event, there would be opportunity for questions and answers and interaction between the audience and the speakers. We'd still like that to happen. So as you listen to this conversation, if you have any thoughts, questions, feedback, you can email it to me at adam.white at AEI.org. Because at the end of this podcast series, we'll return for a closing conversation to respond to the questions and comments that we receive. So please do send in those thoughts, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. A few months ago, I was introduced to Professor Andrew Briggs, who had co-authored a fascinating report on how we ought to think about technology and ourselves in the age of global computer networks, big data, and artificial intelligence. The report was titled Citizenship in a Networked Age, and it's available online at citizenshipinanetworkedage.org. I was struck by the thoughtfulness and nuance of the report, and I offered to host an event for it at the American Enterprise Institute, where many of us are also researching and writing on issues of technology and self-governance. But as with so many other things, the COVID-19 outbreak put an end to those plans. Instead, we thought we would try to translate that conference into a series of conversations, which we'll release as podcasts here in the AEI events series. Of course, it's rather ironic that our discussions of human life in a networked age will be happening over a series of Zoom discussions and podcasts. But then again, the last few months' experience in social distancing and questions now being raised about the longer-term future of work, government, and society do help to focus the mind more precisely on what sort of future we're building for ourselves. So with that in mind, it's my great pleasure to begin this series of podcasted events with two of the report's three authors. Professor Andrew Briggs is the inaugural holder of the Chair in Nanomaterials at the University of Oxford. In 1999, he was elected Honorary Fellow of the Royal Microscopical Society for his innovative methods and applications of microscopy. In 2002 to 2009, he was director of the Interdisciplinary Research Collaboration in Quantum Information Processing. He has more than 600 publications with nearly 25,000 citations. His latest book with Hans Halverson and Andrew Steen, published by Oxford University Press, is titled, It Keeps Me Seeking, The Invitation from Science, Philosophy, and Religion. Professor Briggs, welcome. Thank you very much, Adam. And one of professors, uh, Professor Briggs' two co-authors is with us as well, Dr. Dominic Burbage, lead author from the University of Oxford. He researches decentralizations, both technological and governmental, and citizenship and social trust. He is research director at the University of Oxford, external advisor to Templeton World Charity Foundation, and director of the Canterbury Institute. Dr. Burbage is the single author of two books and nine peer-reviewed articles which focus on the nature of democracy, social trust, and human connectivity. Dr. Burbage, welcome. Thank you for having me. And let me mention their third co-author, 
Michael J. Rice is Professor of Science Education at University College London, Visiting Professor at the Universities of York and the Royal Veterinary College, an Anglican priest, and a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, the, Social, the Society of Biology, and the Royal Society of Arts. He's unable to join us today, but I'd encourage you to follow his work as well. This report was produced by the University of Oxford and supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation. Professor Briggs, why don't you tell us about the origins of this report? How did this come together? In 2017, uh, a group of us was discussing how to promote human flourishing uh, and specifically through the best of scientific insight and spiritual wisdom. And uh, as we thought about that, we found ourselves thinking of uh, three dimensions of human flourishing, uh, material, relational, and transcendent. And we found ourselves thinking about the, the pillars of flourishing, too, which we, we saw as truth and purpose and meaning. And in fact, next year, Oxford University Press will uh, publish a book by, that Michael Rice and I have almost finished writing, entitled Human Flourishing, Scientific Insight and Spiritual Wisdom in Uncertain Times, where we'll unpack those a bit. But then we thought a, a bit more, and we thought, well, people have been thinking about human flourishing since, well, since before writing was invented. And what's changing in the world that means that that, that previous thoughts about human flourishing will need to be uh, either replaced or, or applied in a fresh way. And we had a number of study groups around the world, one group that met over a series of occasions in Oxford, and we identified actually quite a number of things that are changing in the world, things to do with longevity, with healthcare, with um, literacy, with attitudes to um, economics and so on, but also technological changes. And of the different technological changes that we looked at, one that sort of floated up to the top of the list was the digital networking, the very technologies that we're using now. And as we thought about digital networking, we realized that that's inseparable from artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is now applied to almost every use of digital services there is. And so we felt, well, that's a rather important change. What, what aspect of human flourishing does it impact? And we, we thought how it impacts uh, people's sense of identity and engagement with others. We, we felt that it impacts people both as individuals and as members of communities. And uh, particularly now that machine learning is transitioning to be so much about decision-making, we thought, well, it affects um, decision-making with its responsibilities and privileges. And as you look at all those aspects of, of human flourishing that are impacted, we realize that, that they all relate to citizenship. And it, it's no coincidence but it, it, that, that that's an area that Dominic is particularly expert on. And so we were keen to, to draw on, on Dominic's expertise in an area which seemed to us to be really, really important, and thus to focus the report on the qualities of citizenship that are going to be needed in this digitally networked age. Dominic, would you like to say a word about that? Yeah, I think um, Andrew's got it just right, and, and I think that really demonstrates how 
we came into this and our level of interest, we kind of use this phrase, the networked age. Of course, lots of people are touting uh, different terms, the extent to which this is a digital age, um, the extent to which this is a machine learning age. And we really felt that there are two components to this, which you can't see in isolation. So the first of this is the changing shape of community. That says relationships increasingly rely on digital technologies and online interaction. The very shape of what our community looks like and our friendship network is under radical alteration. And the second is that machine learning dimension to this new platform-based engagement, which is dependent on algorithmic reasoning and as Andrew has highlighted affects even the decision-making processes that are under play and the tragedy is that oftentimes we comment on these in isolation and it looks like we're being specialists and being experts by saying oh I do social media or I do machine learning but as we know in the course of interaction the self-learning element of the behavior of computers and technology is ever-present, even at the most mundane human-to-human level. We've had computers for many decades. We've had the internet for many decades. We've had the World Wide Web for a few decades. We've even had, at this point, social media for now nearly 20 years. Um, But it seems that in the last few years, things have changed both in terms of the role of these technologies in our lives, especially social media, and also our awareness of the impact that these technologies are having on our lives. Maybe it takes a few years for things to sort of take shape before we can take stock of these things. But it, as you, you mentioned a moment ago that this all began with a series of conversations in the last few years, it seems to me that in those last few years, there's been a lot of conversations about this. Do you feel like that we've reached some sort of turning point in the public conversation in the last few years as well? One of the things that we we found as we were engaging with uh, study groups in preparation for the report was a danger of of polarization. On the one hand, you've got the you've got the sort of as it were the techies, <laughs> the, the the nerds like me, uh, where we actually use machine learning in in my lab, and the machine actually decides what the next experiment will be and decides what to measure next. Just this morning. We had a, the advisory board meeting for my lab, and we had an amazing presentation from the CEO of a machine learning company that is applying this to tuning up engine management systems, and specifically to reduce the carbon emissions for given power settings. And the contract required them to give a threefold improvement in the time to tune the engine up. In fact, they achieved a thousandfold improvement. And you could apply this again and again in healthcare, in medicine and commerce. So there are those people who see the huge advantages that the technology is bringing and are very enthusiastic about it. And then we, we also found the people who were really worried about this, the sort of people who are worried about the way that the big data companies harvest the data exhaust from everything you do on the Internet and uh, using social media and and other means of of communication. And it it tended 
those tended to be more the people on the philosophical, the social sciences side, the, the, the political sciences side. And as we developed these conversations, we felt this was a really unhealthy polarization because each point of view needs uh, attention paid to it. And, and you need a wide distribution of expertise to bring to bear to address this. And, and, and one of the things that, that gives me joy in the report is the way that it does bring together these different kinds of expertise that are needed. And also, I think, presents a balanced view that's neither dystopian nor utopian, but says, look, uh, this could bring great benefits, but if it's going to do that, we've got to get it right and we've got to pay attention to the civic virtues that are needed in order to achieve that. It seems to me that you're right, there is this polarization, there's a few polarizations, and both sides of each debate seem to assume that their perspective is fixed and that the other side will will or must accommodate it, whether it's those who believe that we're ultimately determined by our technology and that the rest of human life will just need to accommodate that technology, or those who believe that, that human society is, is more or less fixed or can be fixed, and that the technology is entirely uh, dependent upon that society. I think one of the real keen insights of this report is that both of these things shape one another. Um, of course, human agency ultimately can and does decide what the ultimate mix of these things are, but that these things are mutually interdependent, or at least will each will, each will have its own significant impact on the other and an ongoing, whether you want to call it a, a dialogue or an interrelationship with one another. Is, it, is that a fair sense of, of, of your own view of this, Dr. Burbage? Yeah, this is the time where I've been in the most interdisciplinary team in my life. So I'm a social scientist and uh, Professor Andrew Briggs is a nanomaterials scientist and our other colleagues from various other disciplines. And it has been a shock to see the difference is in, in the views and the extent to which that is troubled by what Andrew brings up, the polarization between those who are optimists and, and those who are pessimists on these questions of technology. And, and Adam, I'd be interested in, in, in your thoughts, whether you'd agree, but my sense is that in the US at the moment, you're going to find that optimism and that pessimism on both sides of the political spectrum. So on the left, there are those who are progressivist in terms of seeing change and modernity really bringing out new realms of equality or new realms of inclusion. That was certainly behind the Arab Spring optimism about the use of, of social media, which is initially sort of backed from the left. But you also have a growing sense that inevitably the shift to a gig economy is going to be bad for the working class. So in the left, you get all kinds of narratives of pessimism that go alongside that. And then, of course, on the right, you have more social conservatives that believe in traditional values and believe that you have core family values that are being trampled on by the invasion of, of, of privacy or the inability to set your own standards about the consumption of these technologies. But you also got a lot of optimism from those who are pro-free market and being able to say 
that let things be free so that the economy can provide the options that consumers want to try to bring about greater ethical standards. So there's a polarization and there's a difficulty in knowing which side of the political spectrum would represent each particular view. So this is genuinely new territory. I, I agree completely with your assessment of the American political scene. I keep in, in our conversation today referring to it in terms of polarizations, plural, because you have political polarization right and left. You have polarizations within both the American right and the American left. You have polarization between those who are more familiar with some of these technologies, in, in particular Silicon Valley, um, and then those who are more familiar with the world outside of Silicon Valley that is so affected by these technologies. And so I, I agree completely. Your point you made just a moment ago, Dr. Burbage, about the interdisciplinary nature of the team. That's, I, I have to admit, I was so fascinated in my original conversation that I had uh, with Professor Briggs many months ago about these things, because as when we were introduced before we met in person, I read his biography and I saw what he works on at, at Oxford. And I thought, well, it's interesting that he's turned to this particular subject. Um, and then I looked at the, uh, the biographies of the others involved in this project and was just so struck by the sheer breadth of background experience and expertise that all of you brought to the table in some ways that your team is, is a microcosm of sorts of the challenge of this subject overall, whereas people, all of us from so many different walks of life come with, with different experience and perspective on these issues and different stakes and interests. Trying to have anything, uh, anything resembling a, a, a productive conversation uh, on these subjects is always such a challenge. How did, I'm just curious, before we get to the, the real substance of the report, how did your team work through those sorts of translation problems between uh, people from different fields and different backgrounds and expertise? Professor Briggs? I love that question. I think, I think we had to work very hard at it, actually. I think, I think it's hard work to come to value and respect the contributions of people who come from different backgrounds of yourself, from yourself. And it's very easy to, to you know, start off feeling, well, they've got very little to offer. And, of course, tragically, some people never get past that point. What was hugely enriching for us is that as we got to know and trust and particularly respect each other, we each of us found ourselves being hugely enriched by the insights of the others on the team. And that, that, that for me was part of the joy of the process of working at this together. Dr. Burbage? No, exactly. I think that's right. I think for me personally, I am someone who is you know, experienced to a limited degree with talking about political events, current affairs, social change, the political sociology of what we're about. And so much of that is running up with changes in technology, but one lacks confidence in being able to say categorically where things stand. And so the beauty of this uh, collaboration has been able to have those frank conversations with scientists, those in, in the computer science world. Uh, Andrew mentions the great um, collaboration between us as authors, us as a, as a research group, a research team. Alongside that, we did a global consultation of experts around the world, which brought us into interaction with even more disciplines. 
And the wonderful thing is you can have those frank conversations, particularly for us, on the distinctive moral reasoning of the human being. That has been a concern for us all the way through, because as you navigate these changes in technology, we are dealing with the question mark over self-learning and decision-making machines and algorithms. And if you are going to properly assess that, you need to know what is also distinct about the human being. And that's something that you can't defend without confident interdisciplinary communication. Now, we've talked a lot about how this report came together, uh, the team that produced it. Maybe now we'll talk about the actual substance of the report. Eventually, I want to focus on the, the first word of the title itself, citizenship, because that is so much the center of this entire discussion. Um, but Dr. Burbage, why don't you give us an overview of, of, of the substance of the report, and then we'll dive in. Great, thanks. So what this report is about is asking what are the distinct qualities of human beings or human agency that is going to be a permanent feature of understanding who we are and what it means to be a community despite all manners of structural and techn technological transformations. This is a hard question to ask, but it lies at the root of interpreting the goodness and the badness of all of the changes that we see and the extent to which we can imagine a new type of society that is able to put values, democratic participation, at the heart of the processes that we've seen. From my point of view, a lot of the analysis, firstly, is in terms that you, you read out there, is in terms of, is this really new or is this old? Sure, that's an important, interesting question in terms of technologies, you know, so, social shifts. And then it's in terms of saying, okay, do we accept or reject it? And that is not doing justice to the sorts of dynamics that are at play when you consider this as a new normal. So our understanding of community, the extent to which that shifts in our view, in the report's view, requires a corresponding discovery of civic ideals that apply to this networked age. So we want to begin that debate on civic ideals even sometimes termed civic virtues that apply to this changing technological landscape because we think this is the new normal. This is not transitory and we need to get this right. Now the report begins with notions of civic ideals, citizenship and community. It also begins with some basic premises about the nature of science, scientific inquiry, knowledge in, in our lives. Uh, Professor Briggs, do you want to introduce those themes? And I'll say specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about early in the report, you say it is worth at the outset affirming these following home truths, three home truths about the nature of, of knowledge uh, and scientific, scientific inquiry. You say models will remain directional for knowledge acquisition, no matter the size and extent of big data and big comp computation. The model we, we have of the human person is our own human nature. And debate over our human nature 
and what society is and is for will therefore be fundamental to our citizenship in a networked age. So you begin by stating very clearly some of the premises about how we understand who we are and how we understand the world about us through scientific inquiry and the production of knowledge. Uh, well, thank, thanks very much, Adam, for, for highlighting that. And um, uh, I, I am an unrestrained enthusiast for science. I love what science can tell us. I love, uh, you, you can think both of science as a sort of, of, of body of, of knowledge, and, and there are um, areas of science where our degrees of confidence are high enough, quite literally, to, to um, uh, base uh, our lives on them, for example, the knowledge of aluminium alloys for um, making airplanes out of. And um, science also is a way of finding things out. And uh, I suppose what one needs to say uh, uh, at the outset is that my <laughs> almost unbridled enthusiasm for science is in the context of saying, but, but science isn't well equipped to address all the questions that are worth asking. And so it's not that there's any topic that's off limits for science. It's not that you say, well, we can't do neuroscience because that would be interfering with the human um, brain or something. Let's learn as much as we possibly can through the approach of science. Extraordinary. The uh, pace at which it's being made, you know, in our current pandemic, let's apply all the forces of science to seek to understand um, uh, every aspect of the pandemic and to develop um, uh, vaccines where there's some extraordinary progress being made at Oxford as, as we speak. But not every question worth asking is amenable to science. So uh, you, you can sort of think of, of, of various transitions. So you can think of um, questions about human uh, motivation um, which you could say is, is amenable to some of the social sciences, the economic science, and I'm struck by the change that I'm seeing taking place in those areas of the social sciences from a sort of rather earlier monochrome view of human motivation described by Homo economicus, that, that humans are rational, uh, greedy, selfish, and lazy, and, and that's being replaced rather rapidly, I think, by uh, what I like to call homo fidelis, you know, a sort of uh, ambitious, generous, caring, altruistic humans. And it's not that you can never find the, the greedy, selfish, lazy, rational ones. Uh, and some bits of human behavior do seem to be described by that to some extent. But you have to take into account these other areas. But then you can go even further than that and and begin to think about values so if you if you ask questions like uh, "Why are we here? What are humans for? What does it mean for humans to flourish? These are questions where you can draw on scientific knowledge uh, and I mean the sciences in their widest sense, but the scientific knowledge won 't get you there because there are other questions about human values that I think demand, actually demand uh, civic engagement to, to, to formulate the values. They uh, 
involve different viewpoints. They involve all sorts of different kinds of um, human abilities to be brought to bear on them. And there seems to be increasing evidence that, that it needs our whole makeup as people. Um, so our rational capacities, but also our affective, our emotional capacities. And of course, our history and our narratives play a, a huge role in these. So I hope that as we, as we um, seek to develop these, these uh, virtues that are needed for good civic engagement, so we'll draw on the full richness of human experience and narrative and knowledge uh, to come to good choices. The way you describe that called to my mind the example of, of, of the famous philosopher and economist Adam Smith, right, who is, I suppose, most famous for his study of, of economics um, and in a way of, of technology of, of, of his time in The Wealth of Nations. But of course, uh, his book on The Wealth of Nations is preceded by his study of the theory of moral sentiments and his view of, of the nature of man. And man is not a strictly sort of consuming uh, and productive animal, but rather as, as a human being in a much more full sense with, with, with empathy and sympathy. But, you know, it also reminded me, we're, we're recording this in May of 2020, it reminded me of just days ago in the United States, uh, the Templeton Foundation, and again, your report is supported by the by Templeton World Charity Foundation, but in the United States, uh, Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes for Health, was just a few days ago awarded the Templeton Prize from 2020 for his work as a scientist and also as a man of faith. And he released a statement upon winning the award. He said, the realization that principles of faith and science are complementary has been of great comfort to me in the search for truth. And in many ways, that echoes your own efforts here in this report. Now, as I said, the report, and again, the report for our listeners, the report is available online at citizenshipinanetworkedage.org. I'd encourage our listeners to see the report for themselves because even our conversation today can't do justice to the full substance of the report. But it begins with citizenship, the title, but also the analysis. Uh, your second chapter is titled, Where Citizenship Starts. And as you mentioned a moment ago, this report is premised upon a very broad notion of citizenship, not just our relationship to the government, but our relationship to society more broadly. Dr. Burbage, could you say a few words about citizenship and the role it plays in this report? We have this chapter entitled Where Citizenship Starts, which is because the importance of our notion of citizenship throughout history we have to realize is playing an important role in shaping our current debates and allowing us space to discuss what types of new civic engagement, new citizenship that we require for the networked age. And so for this, we go back to looking at the citizen-slave distinction, which is, of course, a distinction that originates in Roman law within the Roman Empire and is carried forward in terms of being able to understand the high status of a citizen as involving rights and powers that others don't enjoy, but comes to an emotional fore 
with the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau just ahead of the French Revolution, where the socio-economic conditions of the French people for Rousseau are evidence that you might have citizenship in name or in legal designation, but that does not amount to a real citizenship because the socioeconomic conditions are slave-like. And that crossover of our notion of citizenship into something which isn't just legal, but is normatively laden and in of politics, of course, is then carried over into debates within the US. And so where we discuss citizenship versus slavery, it is a pertinent question that covers the American Civil War period and is an, an understanding instrumental for civil rights debates going forward. Now, where this comes to specific prominence is that there is a concern that our interactions with technology can return us to a slave-like condition. Now, of course, this is not amounting to anything akin to slavery as we know in the history of America or as we know in the Roman Empire or kinds of other examples. But if we just focus a bit in terms of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's writing, we would say that for him, the socioeconomic conditions are enough to call into question at times your agency as a citizen and therefore the extent to which you are equal participants in the political process and the society around you. So when you look, for example, at Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, one way to read her is not to say she's simply concerned about economic inequalities arising through technological change. Of course, that's a feature running through what she says. Nor is it only to look at privacy in terms of a individual right distinct from other ways of being a good person or being a person involved in, in, in politics, but it's precisely this overlap between one's socioeconomic conditions and the extent to which you are an equal player in society as a whole. So for her, the difficulty is that the outlook is very bleak we could be very pessimistic when you read her because it looks as though the attempts at contract or consent-based interaction with the multinationals who run the platforms, who provide us with these free apps and free social media sites, it seems to her that that consent-based framework is not enough in that agents or citizens can't do enough to know all of the ramifications of the data that they give up and that puts too much power in her view in the hands of those corporations and not in the hands of agents and citizens themselves and others of course will take an absolute opposite view of saying contract precisely respects the agency of people and therefore is in keeping with good democratic citizenship but it's important to realize that these debates are much older than some of the reflections on, on, on technology are making out. And that's why we need to go deep philosophically, 
not just in terms of our awareness of, of technological change. You say uh, going deep philosophically, uh, time and time in this report, you'll see uh, readers will find uh, a quote or a citation to say the Harvard Business Review and then one footnote later, a, a, a quote or a citation for, from Augustine. <laughs> so it does, exactly. it, it does go very deep. Um, you, you, when you discuss citizenship in the report, you begin with this, that early notion of citizenship, the citizen-slave distinction, and you point out that you know, a classical notion of citizenship is one where citizenship is a reward or something you achieve. It's a status you achieve, whereas you get to Jean-Jacques Rousseau um, and, and the more modern notion of citizenship is one of right, right? We have a, a right to citizenship. Um, but the challenge in this, and as, as seen in notions of civic virtue, uh, or the, the, the well, yes, in civic virtue, I'd say, is, is, is that citizenship entails obligations. It's not just those things that we're entitled to. It's those things that we ourselves need to contribute to the whole, and also those things that we need to sort of contribute uh, to ourselves in order to, to, to help uh, fully participate in, in the whole. Citizenship, I'd say, at, at first glance, when I first saw the report, first started thinking through it, citizenship, it, was, it really struck me. Uh, your use of the term really struck me because in my own work, focusing on the relationship between uh, the individual and government in the context of the United States constitutional government, we're talking about this relationship between man and, and, and the institutions of government specifically. And I always sort of re resist a little bit broader, the broader notion of citizenship when it comes to non-governmental institutions, right? And here we are talking about technological platforms that are by and large private companies. But as your, your report reminds, reminds the readers and it reminded me, so much of the challenge of this aspect of technology is that it's creating, and the word platform I think is revealing, it's creating this foundation upon which society will exist, the ways in which we'll go about our lives sort of upon the infrastructure that's provided by these companies in the same way that hundreds of years ago, our lives, uh, you know, we lived them out on the infrastructure provided by government, not exclusively government, but, but a lot of government, whether it was the physical infrastructure of of roads and bridges or the the, the sort of the the theoretical infrastructure of laws that are the the basis for our interactions with one another and so reading the report the the notion of citizenship I think becomes very very apt and again focused both on not or not just on what we're entitled to as citizens, but what we're really obligated to do or challenged to do as citizens. Is, is that a, a fair reading of this? Yeah, I think so. And I think what we're trying to do here is to create space for debate in this very messy middle ground of saying that human beings are by nature free and their views are going to be important for moral decision-making despite all manner of technological changes. And what you instead tend to find in commenting on these sorts of topics is the polarization between those who are very reluctant to talk about human nature as being affected by technological change and would instead want to frame technology as tools tools for certain ends, 
but tools that human beings take and use in so far as they are useful. And then at the complete other end of the spectrum, you've got those who believe that human nature and the human person is so plastic, so fungible, that it will be washed away in the technological transformations that we're about to see. And that progressivist narrative, obviously brought to a peak among the transhumanists, is something that makes it hard to see a stable space for debating human agency alongside these changes. But there is this messy middle ground where we say that human nature is of permanent relevance for interpreting our overall flourishing in the midst of these transformations. And that furthermore, we would say that our habits can nevertheless be affected by the sorts of changes we've seen. And so that's why in discussing civic ideals or, or, or virtue in the report, we put various connections with the thought of Alistair McIntyre, who is a philosopher now based in, in the University of Notre Dame, who is quite concerned with the way in which the, the habits of people change in the midst of structural social transformations and the extent to which one can still live a meaningful, purposeful life, which is deliberative, intentional, despite the influences that come in all directions. And so his most recent book, which is called Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity, looks quite strictly at the extent to which we are navigating competing desires. And he doesn't focus too much in technology and specifically the internet or digital technologies, but it's quite easy to apply that framework to the current dilemmas that we're facing which is that the internet and technology provide all manner of options for changing who you want to interact with, who you want to be. Relationships become more voluntary, that you have to really decide who to hang out with. The funny thing about Facebook and, and some other messaging platforms is that you can more or less ignore some friends without it being offensive because you can, in a way, blame the, the algorithm of your news feed, that it's giving you a summary, a quick selection. And so the extent to which you purposefully engage with someone or give them your undivided attention becomes more voluntaristic. You, you choose it. But in all of those choices that we're making, we have competing desires about the kind of person we want to be. And so we have to look at that very messy middle space of saying who I am in terms of human nature, who I want to be, and the habits that connect me towards what I want to be. And that meets very closely, I think, with what you're saying in terms of the importance of obligations within our notion of citizenship, which is, of course, habit-orientated in terms of social norms or virtues, and yet something which is severely underexplored with the debates on technological change. You mentioned uh, Alistair McIntyre. Um, I was reminded of, of another American political philosopher, Harvey Mansfield, who about 15 years ago wrote an essay in, a, in an American publication. And the essay was titled, Rational Control or Life Without Virtue. 
Uh, and, and the idea was that he, he, he begins with an anecdote from the, the sinks we see in, in washrooms today, the ones that are automatic, right? The ones where you just wave your hand near it and, and it washes your hands for you. <laughs> and, and, you know, these now, especially 15 years later, are just a sort of a fact of day-to-day -day life. But as Professor Mansfield pointed out in that essay, what does that say about us uh, that we, 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 we either cannot be trusted to turn on the sinks for ourselves or we think we need not be sort of responsible for turning on the sinks for ourselves. Rather, we'll just allow these things to be done for us in a way that changes our, us ourselves. Professor Briggs, would you like to add anything on these themes? As we were working at this together, time and again, we found ourselves asking, has the networked age introduced issues that had never existed before, or has it given a new poignancy to questions that have been with us a long time? Uh, and and uh, I can illustrate that if you, if you take um, persuasion, Persuasion has been with us, I mean, almost since writing is around. You know, Cicero was obviously a very effective persuader of people. You can probably think of many other examples from the, the uh, ancient civilizations. And, you know, persuasion took on a, a new level of industrialization with uh, 20th century advertising. And what's happening now with the machine learning is that you've got some of the uh, best minds in the world, in some cases I think being paid some of the best salaries in the world, to work in the big data companies to apply the most advanced methods of machine learning that they can devise for targeted persuasion. Mm -hmm. And let's suppose for the sake of example that uh, there's a particular range of human opinions that can be laid out on one straight line. It's usually much more complex than that, but let's sort of simplify it. And let's suppose that there's someone who's got a view that's rather near the middle, but slightly to one side. And let's suppose also that for making money out of that person, but it could be for other purposes, it's better to move them to one or other extreme end. So what do you do? Well, you don't, um, you don't immediately uh, give them an extreme view. You give them a view that's very close to where they are, but just slightly to the side of the direction in which you want to nudge them. And because it feels quite close to them, they feel rather comfortable with it and they warm to it. And then uh, the next time, you just take a little tiny step a little bit further and nudge them like that. And it doesn't need to be a false story. It could be false. But sometimes it can just be a true story that's just uh, spun in a particular direction to nudge them. Now, the other day I was watching a performance from the National Theatre that's being streamed during the lockdown of Shakespeare's play Othello. Shakespeare knew all about this. Iago in Othello knows exactly how to apply these techniques to Othello to get him gradually, gradually, gradually to move to a position of completely distrusting uh, Desdemona in a way that ends up with four people um, losing their lives. And what we've got now with the internet age is very, very sophisticated uh, 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 methods of machine learning being applied to this, either for money-making or to increase your screen time, but that's often for money-making, or, of course, it can be for political or other means of persuasion. That's one of the reasons why 
one of the recommendations of the report, in fact, it's one that's uh, already gained a, a lot of traction, is to teach listening as a civic virtue. So that we're getting people to listen, if they develop this virtue, to what they're being fed, and to be able to use their faculties to evaluate it, to screen out what's persuading them in ways that, you know, in their heart of hearts isn't really what they want to be persuaded of, but also, crucially, to be open to valid points of view that they would benefit from heeding. Now, I began this part of our conversation by focusing on citizenship, but what you're discussing now actually points back to the very first chapter of the report, where you begin by thinking through the technology itself, um, especially in terms of the, the creation of our new technological cap capabilities of, of big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. And one of the points that, that you stress in this first chapter uh, is that, in effect, I guess in a, one way of putting it is the algorithms don't write themselves, right? That, and you quote a, a, a leading engine, a lead engineer from Facebook describing the process of how they fine tune uh, their own service. And you point out that in the middle of this process is this point at which the engineers engineer, right? That, that they begin with the data, but they have a goal of what they're trying to accomplish and a sense of when the fit just isn't quite right. And that along the way, they will reform the algorithms, they'll reform the process of machine learning in order to achieve what they think is, is the outcomes or the, the objectives they're pursuing. And so it's not simply a matter of, of, of disembodied artificial intelligence. It really is a matter of human agency playing a role in this technology. Um, but that's, I guess, that's just one of several points you make in this opening introductory chapter where you describe your, your, your team's understanding of the technology itself. Professor Briggs, could you maybe give a, a, a summary or an overview of, of that aspect of this, especially given your own work as a scientist, how we ought to understand the technology itself. We've already now, just a moment ago, you were, you were beginning with, with this, and maybe we could talk about it a little bit more. There are various big um, changes that are taking place in the um, computer science of machine learning. A starting point is this, that we all got started with computing, those who, those who wrote computer code, by coding a machine to undertake a task. The revolution in machine learning is that you don't do that anymore. You program the machine to learn how to undertake a task. And what, what, what we found in our lab is that uh, this sort of machine learning is, is simultaneously universal and also very specific uh, to the particular um, task that you want it to undertake. <laughs> and it's amazing how good it can get at it. So, uh, for example, we, we have a in the lab, we're, we're time and again tuning up quantum devices for experiments. And a particular kind of device that we often work with can take a beginner days or weeks to tune up. And even a very experienced human can tune it up in uh, maybe three hours or so. Now the, uh, the machine is routinely doing it in 12 minutes. And none of the students in the lab ever want to tune it up by hand again. One of them told this lovely... Uh, imaginary story is it's as if all your life you've been washing your shirts in the bathtub 
and you don't enjoy washing them very much, but you know, it's a bar of soap and you do it and it's the only way to get them clean and so you cheerfully do it. Until one day you acquire a washing machine and you discover you just put the shirts in, put in some detergent, shut the door, press the switch, and you go off and do something else. And two hours later, you come back and your shirts are clean. And you never want to go back to washing them by hand in the bathtub. And where people have benefited from machine learning, learning how to do tasks, uh, that's a common experience. And, and, and they want to make use of that kind of automation. For the foreseeable future, in every case that we shall do this, a human will tell the machine what the goal or goals are. Uh, it's called a score function or a utility function sometimes. Um, some of my friends in Oxford and elsewhere in the world have fun writing books about what about the day when the machines are so so vastly exceed human intelligence that they'll reset their goals. <laughs> well, it's right, it's right to think about those things. And... Uh, it's good to uh, make sure that we don't uh, inadvertently slip into that. But I have to say that for all practical purposes, that's a long, long way away. And uh, for all the practical purposes, I think probably in my lifetime, it'll be humans deciding what the objective or objectives are. And we can do multi-objective optimization. That's a rather well-established field now. So it's going to come back to these these values. What are the values that are going to underpin the score functions that we give to the machine learning for the uh, tasks that we want the machines uh, to learn how to do? And that's why the civic engagement is so important. That's why the discussion is so important, because in a changing world, if we can converge on shared values, then even where we disagree about how best to pursue those values, and, and humans will disagree, that's, that's part of um, um, being human and working together in communities, we can still reach a decision to which everyone can be committed. Uh, you can see that in a strong marriage, that if they couples got shared values, they can disagree, but they can um, work through their disagreements and come to a common mind. And there's no shortcut to shared values. You just have to work at it, and it takes a lot of work. And I, I hope, here's my hope, that in the current pandemic in which we're making this recording, people will treat this as a, as a, as a giant-sized stop-and-think point. And we won't simply say, you know, we want as quickly as possible to get back to exactly where we were before the pandemic came along. I hope what we'll say is, hey, do you know what, this is a good time to stop and think what we really care about and what really matters to us and what we're learning from the experience of different ways of interacting and different ways of working and different patterns of traveling. And we'll take those lessons forward to refine and review and reform the values that are going to underpin the future decisions we make by whatever means, including using the tools offered by machine learning. In the report, which again was written long before the, the COVID outbreak, you, you end one part of, the, of this discussion by saying, or asking, uh, what ideals of citizenship must be rebuilt for the networked age? And I suppose that's a, another way of, of posing the question you pose now. 
right? Knowing what we know now, not just in terms of technology and its effect on us, but also knowing or, or having things revealed by this global stoppage of, of day-to-day life. Uh, as you say, we're at this point where we can ask and, and therefore should ask what we want our future to look like because it's not entirely out of our own hands. In working through these things, you said earlier, you said, you know, working through these questions, that reminded me of another question raised by this part of the report, focused on, on the inquiry of, science, of, of, of scientific inquiry itself. Let's say also the work of governance. You point out that something is lost when we have the tools that, that can do this work for us, for ourselves, right? Something's lost when instead of the traditional scientific inquiry, um, it's faster to just seek correlations in, within, within the big data, so to speak. Um, that yes, we'll get some answers and they might be good and useful answers, but by not going through the work ourselves, we lose that opportunity to see how these things themselves actually work. Something jumped out at me in the report. You quote a professor, Jonathan Zittrain, he's a professor at Harvard Law School. And I'll just say it's, it's no exaggeration to say that when I, a couple of decades ago, had an opportunity to, to choose from a few law schools, um, the, the, main, the number one reason I chose Harvard Law School is actually to study under Professor Zittrain uh, and hit the work he was doing in the 1990s on, on the internet and law. And you quote, uh, you quote a New Yorker essay that he wrote titled, The Hidden Costs of Automated Thinking. You say, he, he says, and you quote, intellectual debt, it's an interesting way of putting it, intellectual debt, accrued through machine learning, features risks beyond the ones created through old style trial and error, because most machine mo- learning models cannot offer reasons for their ongoing judgments. There's no way to tell when they've misfired if one does not already have independent judgment about the answers they provide, right? The more we come to depend upon these technologies and these models to do our thinking for ourselves, the less capable we'll be as individuals and as a society for doing the thinking when it needs to be done. The childhood line that comes to mind is give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for life. Right. In a way, the, one of the things you warn about in this report is that the technology does our fishing for us, which is good in the short term, but has some real long term detrimental effects. And again, you focused on you focused in chapter one of the report on scientific inquiry. But I'd say also just in government itself, right? the more that's turned over to sort of rational control, rationalistic control, and especially machine augmented rational control, the less that government becomes sort of that ongoing process of people voicing their own concerns, their own interests, trying to persuade one another, listening to one another, and trying to achieve workable compromises. And instead, it becomes much more a process of finding a rationalistic solution, and I'll use the word solution in implicit quote marks there, and then having it imposed upon society. Um, that's, that, that struck me. The things that you raise in, in section one of the report actually then tie in to what you raise in, in chapter five of the report, where, we, where you discuss algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. Can we talk a little bit about that chapter? There's a, I want to return 
to the, the chapter on community or the discussion of community platforms and institutions. But since we sort of segued into it, let's talk a little bit about algorithmic and democratic decision making. Now, again, as I said, this conversation we're having today is just the first of a series of podcasts. We're going to have a couple of episodes after this where I'll bring in uh, scholars and experts um, from outside of the project who have read the report and focused on particular chapters to discuss some of the questions raised um, in the report. And we, again, can't do justice to the entire report, even in this series. But one of the discussions that I really wanted to bring in people to, to think through, given AEI's own work on these, these issues, is this discussion, this chapter on algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. Professor Briggs, could you tell us about that chapter? Because this is a um, podcast, I'm going to have to paint a picture with my words. Right. But if we were in the room together, I'd be holding up my right hand with my thumb and my forefinger and my next finger at right angles to each other. And so one axis of decision-making is almost purely technical once you've set the objectives. So it might be, uh, we want to have enough electricity for everybody at even, any given moment. Which power stations do we turn on and which kinds of fuel do we use? And you might have more than one criterion. You might want to keep the cost down. You might also be wanting to minimize carbon emissions and, and, and you might have other considerations too. But that's an almost straightforwardly technical decision. I think that we'd be happy to leave it to technical humans. And I think if the machine learning can come in and do it better, I think most of us would be comfortable with that. And there could be decisions that really affect human lives. For example, the scheduling of air crews for a big airline is a very complex problem. How do you get the right crews in the right plane to go to the right place at the right time? And uh, it affects people, it affects time with their families and when they get their holidays and so on. But again, it's a sort of technical decision. And I think most of the time we'd be quite happy if the machine learning can do it better and faster and more efficiently than humans to hand that over to humans. We'd be happy to hand it over to machine learning. It's the sort of way that we use the machine learning in my lab. It's the way it's widely used, actually, in many areas of, of, of science and engineering. Then there's a... A second direction, so this would be my forefinger, if you like, if the first one was my thumb, where we're thinking about decisions where there's a moral component. And supposing you've got a court of law and supposing it's a criminal trial and their first decision is to take, is to decide whether the, the, the person actually committed the crime. And in a, in a very broad sense, that's sort of technical decision because you just try to establish the truth of whether or not they did. But then supposing that they, they're found to be guilty, then there's another decision, which is what is a just sentence for that person who committed that crime? And now you begin to see that this, this can't be just a sort of scientific decision. It couldn't possibly be because there's a sort of ideas of moral uh, values that come in uh, and justice that come in. Uh, they may be aspects to which uh, algorithms can contribute. That is certainly the case in the UK since 2010 and a, a particular um, um, commission that was introduced to, to try to provide more uniform sentencing across the country. Nevertheless, we still feel there's a moral element to it and we still feel that I think that humans have a unique capacity for uh, moral decisions. 
And there's a certain amount of evidence for that from cases where you have humans whose whose um, rational powers seem unimpaired, but in some way that you can observe, they seem sort of disconnected from their emotional selves, and they tend not to live lives very well. And then there's a third element, which is the commitment to the decision that's taken. So this would be my third finger, my second finger, that's at right angles to the first two, if you like. And you say, uh, even if we have a decision that is technically as well-informed as it can be, even if it's morally as good as we know how to make it, are people going to be committed to implementing that decision? So there seems to be, uh, and it'd be possible to have a, a decision that would satisfy the first two criteria, but not the third one. So we need this sort of third way of, of gaining community commitment uh, to be honest, every CEO knows this. You know, you've got to have it in a company if you're if you're taking decisions in the company. You need the workforce to be committed to the decisions. But if we're thinking of it in the context of citizens, that the citizenry as a body has be, got to be committed to it. And one of the ways of achieving that, perhaps the best way, perhaps the only way, is to have them involved in the very decision-making process itself. Now, I think in all these aspects, the, the machine learning and the networking can be tools as long as that's what they are and that's what we keep them as. Um, and as you know, what we're trying to do is to reach decisions that are optimal along all three axes. In other words, they're based on good technical analysis, they're based on good moral analysis, and they have strong commitment to the implementation of them. Dr. Burbage? I think uh, to try and tackle this, we have to go back, Adam, to what you were saying in terms of rationalistic solution. So the danger here is that algorithmic decision-making by being excellent at pattern identification and optimization of the given values that Professor Briggs already outlined means that it crowds out democratic participation and we got to be frank about this upcoming problem it's not something that we can put our heads in the sand about and so we have to really ask what is it about human involvement in the decision making that we need to defend as eternal as something that we say our democratic norms depend on they rely on and our civil liberties require. So let me give you an example. There's a lot of debate on hate speech online. Obviously, people feel that social media can lead to polarization, whether that's political polarization or just polarization in terms of other social views or different issues. And what if I were to say that Facebook has perfectly solved the hate speech problem? Imagine I were to say, ah, they've actually cracked an algorithm that is able to identify any speech which is hateful and can therefore remove it automatically. Now, is that really a solution? Um, I'm keen on your thoughts. Obviously, there's going to be a big cry of Big Brother here. 
okay, we're going to think George Orwell, 1984, something about the perfection of the very thing that we're seeking seems detrimental to our development and our moral agency. So in a sense, what we're saying there is we would rather have a half bad system than a perfect system. And it may even be the case that if Facebook were to achieve that, it might destroy Facebook as everyone leaves Facebook. There's something about live interaction where you don't know what's going to happen that is engaged in all kinds of speech and all kinds of ways we interact where the hazard, the rough and ready style feels genuine. And if things are too controlled or too carefully crafted, we feel it's disingenuous. So we have to ask how much do we need to identify clearly that space for moral engagement despite its harms as a zone for human freedom that you have to protect just as you would have had protection in terms of privacy we also need to extend this to protection of freedom of association whereby we say what happens online is also a community building exercise for which there may be difficulties there may be bumps in the road but something about being able to work together through them is an essential value that we don't want to lose here in the united states well i guess worldwide we're about to see a an interesting experiment in these processes at facebook itself just a few weeks before we tape this conversation facebook announced its independent oversight board Right. For so far throughout its existence, Facebook's decisions about whether to take down certain content because it violates various um, rules of, of Facebook has been an internal affair and rather opaque. And oftentimes Facebook's decisions like Twitter's decisions and others um, spark an outcry, people demanding justifications for the platform, either taking action or justifications for having not taken action. And now Facebook has, has announced this global independent oversight board with a variety of, of, of scholars and, and other experts who are going to serve in a way as Facebook's global Supreme Court to take a body of rules that they've been given, right? Facebook's basic terms of service and, and, and content uh, rules, and apply those in individual cases just as a court applies the rules that have been given to it by, by the legislature. Of course, as James Madison knew, uh, even the, 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 most, uh, the rules that have been given the most deliberation and the most debate, they're never written quite perfectly. There's always some vagueness, some room for discretion. And so now we're going to have this institution, this new Facebook Independent Oversight Board of, of real decision, of, of decision makers who are out in public deciding how to apply these rules, how to interpret them in a way they'll be making rules sort of within in, inside the gaps within the rules. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how they go about that work and how the public receives that work and the extent to which then the public feedback shapes the board's work going, going forward. And in that respect, this is in so many others, this report is just perfectly well-timed because we are at a real sort of turning point in the history of these communities and these platforms. Uh, and when you said a moment ago, Dr. Burbage used the word community, it reminded me of the other part of this report that we're going to give special attention to in an upcoming podcast episode. Um, the last section of your chapter on the changing relationship between time and attention. 
uh, is titled New Categories of Community, Platform, and Institution in a Networked Age. And that's something that we're, we're giving a lot of thought to here at the American Enterprise Institute. Our colleague Yuval Levin has a new uh, book out on institutions, how to think about them, how to think about rebuilding them. And so that subsection in particular jumped out at me as something that AEI um, ought to explore in one of these episodes. So what are the new categories of community platform and institution in a networked age? What, what did you mean by that, Dr. Burbage? No, thanks. This is a really interesting area and I uh, commend the AEI really for, for tackling it head on. And I think this is where there is going to be huge debate going forward. If we just look at the coronavirus pandemic as an example, what we're seeing here is a shift in people's understanding of what are the moral obligations and government policy orientated towards how deep can they go and how much does good policy rely on good human coordination, oftentimes international. And that creates all kinds of, of headaches and dilemmas, things that we had previously debated only in terms of free trade or the commerce clause, where we talk about different boundaries and what it means to be able to have equal participation, free trade, or international diplomacy, now running into very domestic questions on what our policy is and how much we should engage with citizens in terms of different types of community. So the starting point of this discussion is, of course, the observation, which is now quite common, that these social media platforms are not really companies. So they're of course listed on the stock exchange and you can buy shares if you like. It's an interesting point that Shoshana Zuboff mentions is that in Alphabet Group that owns Google, there was a very strict hierarchy of share ownership such that real decision-making on the firm was with quite a narrow group uh, a radically narrow group compared to what was normally the case for listing companies publicly at the time. Already there, you start to see a bit of a, a difference uh, coming from the finance world, but certainly even more so when you look at the actual uh, practice and operations, because at first you thought you were a consumer, and then it turns out you're a member of a community and you feel morally obliged to stay involved in the process in order to direct it towards the common good. So as much as you would like everyone to join another platform, because they haven't, the only way you can positively contribute is through that platform, which makes it not a company for which you're paying for individual services for, but a new type of community. This is not territorial, obviously, this is network-based, which creates even more headaches, not just for looking at it in terms of hate speech, but also in terms of debates on competition and monopoly. What counts as a monopoly when the whole territory is out of sync with what we would normally judge as the place for which a company might be big or small. But in terms of the user engagement, we'd say, okay, Given that shift towards platforms, 
what is the extent to which we require democratic participation in shaping the ideals and the community norms of that place. And I think we need to think in, in very different terms, very different categories for understanding this. A colleague of mine, Robert Gore, simply views that we should make uh, Facebook and other you know, social media giants, you, you will be able to list them all out, we should make them uh, public companies. That's a bit of a left-wing approach of saying, okay, make them part of the state in order to, uh, to, to be able to regulate them fully. But also for him, it's a democratic move. It's saying, okay, we vote for our representatives. So just let them be in charge of the community guidelines, the ideals, the, the norms and behavior. Of course, for the text, that's for the techies, that's absolutely terrible idea because they believe in innovation and they believe in disruption. And both of those ideals, they believe, can only be pursued outside. So they would say, you do that, that whatever company you've acquired publicly is just going to sink. The market doesn't work like that. And so the innovation is going to be in, in the private sector and that's going to take on new membership, new attraction, and you're just going to have to repeat the process to the detriment of user experiences. But the other side of this is saying, okay, are there other ways of imagining that don't involve heavy state intervention, but can still help us pursue a common good with democratic participation? And this is why I think it's so important that the AEI is reflecting on this. The AEI has a, a, a body of knowledge, a, a, a body of enthusiasm about different experimental ways of considering the freedom of the economy, the freedom of the market. And that is going to allow for an appetite for innovation in terms of even the governance structures that we want to think about. We don't want it that any form of algorithmic optimization leads to centralization. And we've got to rethink the decentralizing aspects of these technologies as to whether they can be made to work with our former understandings of local decentralized politics. On the one hand, these are and remain private companies and, and we all have a choice of what to use and what not to use. And oftentimes when there's debate about whether these plat internet platform companies should be more heavily regulated, you'll hear someone like uh, Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google say, well, people have a choice, right? The other, the next, the other search engine is just one click away. And that's true. At the same time, we know, and, and they also know that um, network effects have a real impact on people's choices. The more people are on a platform, the more valuable it becomes. And they also understand, this is something Eric Schmidt has written about elsewhere. And I keep returning to these because my own initial sort of foray into these debates was through a, an essay on sort of an intellectual history of Google. Um, they, they understand that, that the data that they've amassed and, and the, what they've learned and, and what their algorithm, algorithm, algorithms have been sort of fine-tuned to produce gives them a real advantage over upstart competitors. And of course, it won't forever. Someday, Google will be displaced by another technology. Um, but in the long term, a lot will happen, right? Between, or between now and the long term, a lot will happen. And Google has those advantages. And it's worth thinking, at least thinking, about what that means for our assumptions about government. Um, and the other thing about these platforms is that, I think I mentioned earlier, they really do replace 
and are intended to replace functions that were previously provided by government or government infrastructure. Take the public square, right? It was once literally a public square, right? It was a piece of property that was owned by the government. And for that reason, under, under American law and, and Western law more broadly, we had certain expectations, rights, constitutional otherwise, about how that public square could or could not be regulated, right? In order to preserve space for, for all voices with only limited exceptions. Of course, now the public square is Twitter, <laughs> for better and for worse, or it's Facebook, it's these platforms. These are how we exchange ideas. They're not governmental, but I don't think it's unfair that we approach these platforms with certain assumptions that were developed when the public square was governmental. And so then the challenging question, but not, but not an unfair question is, well, how do we impose or should we impose similar obligations of neutrality on these platforms? And that, of course, is one of the most um, controversial debates right now in the United States on these issues is to what extent should Congress or other governmental institutions impose certain obligations of neutrality on the platforms? And I'll, I'll, I will say, you know, at the outset, I've, I don't have any fixed sort of views on this yet. My own instincts as a conservative, as a liber liberty-minded conservative, is to be very suspicious instinctually of government impositions on these private companies. But I think these are challenging questions, and I, I certainly haven't sorted them, so, sorted them out for myself yet, and um, others haven't either, which is, again, why this report is so important. Professor Briggs, do you have any thoughts? Maybe we'll conclude on this. Do you have any, any thoughts on the, uh, that you'd like to add on these themes of um, community platform and institutions? Well, there's, there's got to be some regulation. Um, uh, all the history says that if you just let uh, any new development go completely unregulated, it will at best lead to a big uh, divide between the haves and the have-nots. In this case, the, the haves are the people who understand or contribute to the technology like, like I do or who know how to use it. And the have-nots will be the, the uh, people who don't have it and you know, might even get their, um, lose their jobs because their job is replaced by machine learning. Um, and and that's, that's the best case. The worst case is it may lead to um, uh, you know, unrest and, and uh, instabilities on a global scale. That could happen too if people get too frustrated. So there's going to have to be some regulation. Easier said than done, because these technologies are no respecters of international borders. So it's got to be on a global scale. And we know that that is not achieved lightly. <laughs> I think uh, 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 you, you've touched on some other important points that, yes, we have some choice. But let us suppose, as is the case, that all your emails uh, are having their data exhaust harvested by uh, big data companies. You can't just tomorrow say, well, I'm not going to use uh, email anymore. I'm going to exercise my free choice. We now live in a world where, you know, it, it would be difficult to function without those kinds of technologies. Um, uh, there is a winner-takes-all uh, scenario. You see that, for example, with navigation app for your car. Mm -hmm. You want to use the one that everybody else is using because that has the best information about traffic flow on it. So it's very hard for a new company to enter. And by and large, the new, where people do come with a clever new algorithm or something, their best hope is to get bought up by one of the big companies, which can sometimes happen 
and then there's another important aspect of all this isn't there which is not so much privacy as anonymity the, 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 there's a great value to privacy we need privacy it's one of the recommendations of the report is to protect privacy for personal moral development but if you uh, uh, with anonymity you can separate in a new way what is said from who said it and there's a long-standing distinction between speech content and speech action. The speech action is one where the person who said it uh, means that what they said makes a difference and changes what's the case. Rather than signing a check, there's a, there's a sort of written kind of speech action. Um, but even before you get to that, um, as you're listening to me now, we're talking, I know you. I know Adam White, I know your credentials, you know, I know the reputation of AEI, I know that it's you saying these things. And the content of what you're saying uh, would have quite different value um, if I didn't know who it was. I just had the words but had no idea of who was saying it. It might just diminish their value, but it might also, um, in the wrong hands, give people the freedom to do very damaging things that they wouldn't do if they were accountable. Uh, for what they're saying. So what's all this saying? I, I think what it's saying is that we're going to have to have um, a combination of regulation and virtue. So there will need to be some regulation, however it's implemented and however hard it is. Uh, but the regulation won't do the whole job for you. And that's going to be have to be matched by uh, the virtues and in the context of our conversation today, the, the civic virtues, which in a well-regulated um, environment, will enable all of this to contribute to human flourishing in the way that we all want to see happening, I think, and we hope it will. Maybe we'll return to that point when we, uh, when we have our, our second conversation. Dr. Burbage, would you like to say something? Great, thanks. I, I couldn't agree more with what Andrew is saying. I mean, the, the way we um, put this dilemma in the report is is to say that that we entered into the networked age on transactional and contractual terms with digital technologies that appeared to make our lives easier. And we stayed on more permanent terms as these technologies increasingly shared in our being, identity, and habituated behavior. And that means that they have a permanent place and a permanent role in shaping our habits, interacting with even our self-awareness of us as a community. So it's a sensitive area and it needs a lot of thought. My suggestion is that we need to double down on the notion of freedom of association. Our focus on freedom has been the freedom of the individual, and that has served us a great deal, but we need to deepen it in the direction of freedom of association, even freedom of association online. And I fear that in dealing with the negativity of bad experiences online through social media, or we can say bad uh, moral outcomes of algorithmic decision-making, that we only look at the question of more or less government regulation and we fail to look at these in terms of 
self-governing institutions that are able to offer community guidelines, social norms, moral appraisals, which can be compared to each other and for which you can get changes in affiliation, use, or membership. So what do I mean here? What I mean is that if we get perfectly right the hate speech point, for example, we lose the space for communities being able to set their own moral ideals online, which are not reduced to whether someone says something hateful or not, but include all manners of the variety of notions of what counts as good. I might want to go for a social media platform because it makes me feel good. It, it, it brings out good emotions and they prioritize in their algorithm emotionally uplifting content. And someone else might like a social media platform that prioritizes learning more. Everything that people say which is factual and it's truth checked is going to feature higher on the algorithm than things that have no informational value. These are varieties of goodness. And our focus on the fear of monopoly has been strictly in terms of the economic, that we say these are big business players and they have many monthly users and we can't have new startups because they keep getting bought out. That's important. But the other side is whether there's a monopoly over community guidelines, monopoly over social norms. If you can't have innovation there, you don't have freedom of association because you cannot be self-governing in the norms and values of groups that you spontaneously create. And unless there is that level of creativity in that, you're not going to see the true goodness of the extent to which these platforms can bind people with good ideals, can set an agenda which is innovative, interesting, and different. Now, there's so much in this report we didn't have time to even begin to reach in this conversation. The chapters that follow those initial discussions on the technology and citizenship, they focus on uh, the changing relationship between time and attention, uh, redefining public and private, and then concluding with um, the discussion of algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. Again, the full report is available online at citizenshipinanetworkedage.org. Uh, the three of us are going to return for a closing conversation in a few weeks to return to some of these themes that we've begun to touch on, offer some, some concluding thoughts, and also to respond to feedback we get along the way. Because in addition to this episode and the two that follow, discussions with other experts on the questions you've raised about community platform and institutions and algorithmic versus democratic decision-making, through those episodes, we encourage our audience to send feedback, questions, comments, on the things we've discussed here in, on the podcast and also in the substance of the report. You can send those thoughts directly to me at my email address at AEI. I'm at adam.white at AEI.org. That's adam.white at AEI.org. Or you can find me on Twitter at Adam J. White, DC. And we'd encourage our audience to send any thoughts that they'd have, just as you would if we'd had this conversation in person at a conference and people would, would raise their hands and ask questions. And we'll return to, to some of those questions in the last episode. But before we close, uh, Professor Briggs, Dr. Burbage, do either of you have any concluding thoughts as we end this part of our discussion? 
Uh, just to say that I really like um, the emphasis you put on this question of intellectual debt. So the idea that we are accruing some intellectual debt and we need independent judgment. And I think we value this discussion on, on moral ideals, not just because it's an inspiration for setting the agenda for what we think community and politics should do, but just because there is a decrease in space for looking at the moral whole, how we interact in a macro level towards ideals. And so this sort of discussion is just really helpful for getting us going on that. And I just encourage people uh, to, 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 to keep talking about it and keep discussing in the midst of all these different specializations. And we started in talking about interdisciplinarity and the difficulties and the benefits uh, of that, just as there is great advantage in specialization, we really need people to engage in discussion of the moral whole. I think that's right, Adam. And, and you know, thank you for the wonderful way that you've um, brought us together to talk about these things. And um, the report is uh, necessarily uh, specific because that's how you make a specific contribution. And it's got seven specific recommendations because um, these are issues that we want people to, to take practical action about. But it's rooted in these deeper questions of, of what are humans for? What, what is human flourishing? How do we actually best promote human flourishing? And uh, I hope that, that these times will give people a fresh impetus really to reflect on those absolutely basic questions. Well, I hope so too. And again, it's my pleasure as well to be part of this conversation. I'm, I'm so grateful to the two of you and your team for inviting me to, 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 to help discuss the themes that you've raised in this report. So we'll be speaking again in a few weeks. In the meantime, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And again, one last time, the report is titled Citizenship in a Networked Age, at citizenshipinanetworkedage.org. Do uh, read the report and tune in to the episodes that follow. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.